Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me, as always, he is the man who played Anton McDuffie in the TV series Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing very well. And I have to tell you, the reason I get choice jobs like Your Pretty Face Going to Hell is because of the podcast. Uh, I get a call from my agent saying, I don't know much about this show. <laughs> Your pretty face going to hell. And the specific episode I'm in is called Fried Alive. The producers told me they're huge fans of the podcast. And they want. Right, and, and we should say, Your pretty face is going to hell, according to the IMDb description, is a live action workplace comedy about Gary, an associate demon as he attempts to capture souls on Earth in order to climb the corporate ladder of the underworld. So that's, that is the plot summary of Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. And, and it's quite funny. I mean, the actors on the show are very good. The show is, is very humorous. But I have to say, we did film Your Pretty Face Going to Hell, Fried Alive, very much like, David, you and I do this podcast. And I don't mean that in a pretty way. I'm, <laughs> I mean, well, you, you mean with the, the best technology and most sophisticated facilities We went available? over to these people's office. It was a working office. And they said, you know, if the phone rings, just try, <laughs> just try to pretend it's part of the scene. I didn't really have uh, a script. Uh, I was where you know, they gave me a leather jacket to wear, and they said, pretend that you're working on the computer and just kind of vamp. And, and, and so we vamped. And, the, and that's what you do for the podcast pretty much as well, right? Unfortunately, so. yes. And, and uh, the uh, phones rang. At one point, I did answer the phone and tried to take an order. Uh, I made up the lines. But the show, I think when I watch it, was was fairly amusing. So you could watch it without fear, but uh, it, it may give you, uh, not nightmares, but kind of an upset stomach. <laughs> Maybe a little, a little uh, what is that? Reflux, you know, digestive mm. reflux. Yes, uh, very specific. <laughs> I like that. Um, but glad that the podcast is getting you some gigs, Tobo. Thank you so much, David. Uh, so, so Toba, over the course of the last few years, I've had the opportunity, nay, privilege, of staying uh, at your house sometimes. You have a little shack out in the back uh, where you allow guests to hole up. And uh, I've been very grateful to be able to, uh, to hang out there when I need, to, I need a little shingle in L.A. to, to hang up. That's right. It's um, the David Chin abode, and you have a list of very specific things you want that back house to be uh, appointed with. I, I, have a, I have a list of demands, you know, <laughs> like a bowl of green M&Ms. Um, and, and to your and Anne's credit, it's always uh, well uh, furnished when I arrive, so I appreciate that. Yes. But uh, I, when I've stayed at your house, I, it's often that I encounter uh, your children as well. Um, your kids are often... Uh, li- have often in the past lived with you or they're hanging out. And I've always just thought, man, I'm really grateful to Steven's kids uh, for being cool with me hanging out in their backyard all the time. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, we never, my family never owned a house that would was that big that it could accommodate guests. Um, but if we did, uh, you know, it might be weird if there was like uh, my parents' guests staying out in the back shed all the time. Yeah, it's weird. Um, you know, when my son comes home now with his girlfriend, I, I mean, 
I hate to say this, David, but they sleep in the David Chen room. So, wow. And they probably Scandalous. drink your distilled water. <laughs> <laughs> they probably do. Well, that is, that is a shame. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I've enjoyed hanging out with uh, your yeah. kids on occasion, played some video games with them uh, on occasion. Um, but I'm always curious, like, how similar are they to you, Stephen? Ugh. How would you describe that? Well, David, I what what is the yeah they say oh, yeah this is the one they say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and I'm sure this is true or it wouldn't be in my book of famous cliches. But the problem with this bit of folk wisdom is that it presents a question disguised as an answer. The question is, what apple are we talking about? Are you sure it's an apple? And did you get a good look at the tree? I was an arts major. My wife was an arts major. Our children are scientists. One became a PhD in organic chemistry. The other is in medical school with an interest in robotic surgery. Now, I'm certain they fell from my apple tree. I was lucky enough to be there at the time of their conception. The only clue as to why they took the direction they did came from William, my youngest. He said, Dad, I've seen how miserable your life has been, and I didn't want any part of it. Yeah. So, what tree did my boys fall from? Great thinkers of the Enlightenment have suggested there is only one tree from which any of us fall. We move towards pleasure and away from pain. In my boys' case, I suspect that the pleasure of a life in lab coats wasn't as much a deciding factor as their sensitivity to one of the biggest pains in my life, paying the rent. When I was in college... I heard the warnings from actors that graduated from our department. They spoke at conference hour at school. They talked about how hard life was in New York. There were no auditions for paying jobs. They had to sleep on friends' floors. They had to try to keep afloat by being bicycle delivery people or dog walkers. They couldn't afford to see a Broadway show, let alone audition for one. It sounded horrible. But I didn't think the same fate awaited me. I had an edge. I was the recipient of the Edith Renshaw Award. This was the highest academic prize offered by the SMU Drama Department. It was given to the actor or actress with the highest GPA and came with a $25 gift certificate to a drama bookstore. As it turned out, the Edith Renshaw Award carried a lot less weight than I expected. After I graduated... One of the first acting jobs I got was being part of a comedy troupe performing skits at the Hyatt Hotel. We were paid in Chinese food. To be clear, we could eat all we wanted, but we did have to use chopsticks. When I came to Los Angeles, I was paid in beer. On the first short film I did, I got a pay cut. If such a thing is possible when you work for free, no beer, no Shanghai chicken. Instead, the producer put out a bowl of sriracha-coated chickpeas for the actors. Now, this was before sriracha was cool, so I just thought they were trying to kill us. I don't want to create a false impression. I did occasionally get paid to act. I made $55 a week acting at Theater 3 in Dallas, and I averaged close to $200 a week doing children's theater in Los Angeles. But the real story is that making money as an actor was an exception. When Beth and I moved to our little house on Hayworth, I was able to pay the rent, and I felt like it was a gift from God. Fortunately, throughout my life, I was never hesitant of finding alternate sources of income 
to keep the dream going. I taught Sunday school. I coached public speaking. I pretended to be other people and did their homework for them. I read to a blind woman. I worked in a warehouse for my Uncle Jaime. I went back to grad school and was paid a small amount of money to teach subjects I knew nothing about. Sidebar. While I was writing this list, I remembered another job I had in Dallas after I graduated. An SMU Drama Department alum, Jackie Miller, produced an educational series for the local public television network. Now, this is before the golden age of educational television that played Upstairs, Downstairs, Monty Python. In Dallas, the big show on educational television was Herman Cruz teaching driver's ed. Jackie asked me to be the host of a series on history and the arts that would be sold to schools. I was thrilled Jackie thought of me. I said yes, of course. They filmed me walking through various parks in Dallas, I'm sure without a permit, talking to the camera. I opened and closed each show, and I occasionally narrated episodes about Shakespeare or Stephen Crane or the Magna Carta. On one episode, I even sang a song from the Middle Ages dressed like a courtier with a big hat with a feather in it while walking around Turtle Creek at dawn. I shot 25 episodes all over Dallas, $10 a show. This program never aired in Dallas, to my knowledge. However, when I began dating Beth, I visited her at her family's home in Jackson, Mississippi over the summer. Her little sister, K.O., recognized me as the man they had to watch on TV for their English class. This was my first taste of celebrity, and the first of many times people couldn't remember my name. In the three years between graduation and getting a children's theater job in Los Angeles, I learned that earning enough money to pay the rent would be the ongoing struggle of my life. This created a constant sense of desperation that was as tight-fitting and stinky as the leotard I wore doing children's theater. Sidebar. People always complain about their work. It doesn't matter what their job is. My brother is a doctor. He never had to worry about making the house payments. There are always plenty of sick people. That was his problem. Everyone he saw was sick. I have friends who got the job of their dreams only to have nightmares about the lack of job security, or that their boss is a maniac, or that they always have to travel, or that they never get to travel. Logically, you would assume that the universality of that complaint would bring people together. But it doesn't. For some reason, people are unable to understand the awfulness of what other people do for a living. This blindness is tied to the yet undiscovered grass is always greener gene. The grass is greener gene is tied to our desire to find our purpose in life. At some point in childhood, usually while watching a Cary Grant movie, this gene is activated. From this point on, we write reports on career day that this is the job we want. Of course, we have no idea what we're talking about. The profession is only a metaphor for our purpose. When we get out into the world, the job we have pursued is not just a metaphor for our sense of purpose, but also a way to make money, which is a metaphor for our sense of worth. The things we buy become a metaphor for what we value, which, after we die, will be packed up and thrown away by our children as a metaphor for what they didn't value. Everything we do is a metaphor, which is probably why there's so many arts majors. Finding your purpose in life doesn't protect you from unhappiness. Rather, it selects what kind of unhappiness you will have. Actors are unemployed. 
Policemen are shot at. Lawyers are lawyers. Purpose is blind to its dangers. If it weren't, we would never do anything. Metaphorically speaking, we all want to be firemen without thinking about the fire. I have noticed that another danger is that the pursuit of purpose is never satisfied. I'm a working actor. At least today I am. I can pay the rent. However, after watching an episode of Chopped, I thought I wanted to be a chef. The momentary shift in purpose compelled me to grab our mandolin and tell Anne I was going to slice up some carrots. Within two minutes, I cut off the end of my middle finger. It was horrifying. There was blood everywhere. I wrapped my middle finger in layers and layers of gauze, creating the impression that I was shooting everyone the bird. Sidebar. I never found the end of my finger. I knew it had to be somewhere in the kitchen. The thought of it lying around somewhere haunted me. A few days later, I was working in my office. Anne was making dinner, and she called out, Stephen, I found the end of your finger. I ran into the kitchen, and there it was, stuck to the side of the mandolin. It didn't look like a finger anymore. It could have been a piece of radish. But upon close examination, I could make out fingerprints. Anne asked me if I wanted to keep it. She was serious. And that tells you everything you need to know about Anne. One of the aspects of living into your 60s is you could track many points on a graph. In this case, I can see my evolution of purpose in my life. The objects of my purpose have changed, but not my passion. I always felt the same need to reach whatever goal was fixed in my mind. We like to think of our purpose as a solid foundation from which we jump to reach the stars. I think we're more like chameleons, changing our colors based on whatever we're touching at the moment. There's no question that my life has been framed by my love of two women, Beth and Anne. But I swear to you, for a brief moment in my heart of hearts, I was just as certain of my love for Sally and Kathy and Julie. My affection for Claire Richards belongs in another category. We never had a romance, just the unforgettable mixture of missed opportunities and inspiration. It's easy to see passion associated in finding purpose in romance, no matter how brief. That's God's fault. He stacked the deck. He's a terrible wingman. Even if it's way before closing time, he whispers, yeah, yeah, she's good. Let's go for it. You would think I would be more faithful to my purpose and career choices I've made. After all, I am an actor. I have been almost all of my life. From playing Hansel in the Pee Wee production of Hansel and Gretel at Keys Park when I was five, to receiving an award last year on the Jimmy Kimmel Show for being the guy who nobody knows that's in everything. I have paid my dues, both literally and metaphorically, and I'm still at it. You would think I'm looking around the bin for one more great role. But it's not true. It is an impression created by inertia. Objects in motion stay in motion. At a certain point, acting became the only job I could do. In terms of feeling the passion of purpose, I felt the same excitement for geology in college, for dinosaurs and a variety of poisonous reptiles and amphibians when I was a member of the Dangerous Animals Club for the piano from the moment I saw Claire play in second grade until today. I've imagined a world in which I'd be a baseball pitcher, a lawyer, a doctor, and for a brief moment, an inventor. Yes, 
When I was eight, I came up with two remarkable ideas. The first was something called the aqua snorkel. This involved two RC Cola bottles connected to a snorkel that mom bought at Skillern's drugstore. The theory was that if you could inhale through the snorkel, bringing oxygen into your lungs, surplus oxygen would fill the RC Cola bottles for later, increasing the time you could stay underwater. Fortunately, the engineering of the aqua snorkel was too complex for me, so we avoided any deaths. The second idea came from watching Claire play the piano at a talent show when I was eight. I thought, what if I could invent a piano that didn't sound like a piano? It would have switches, so if I pressed a note, it could sound like a violin, or a drum, or a flute. Yes, I imagined a synthesizer. As I'm sure untold numbers of little boys and girls did years, maybe decades, maybe centuries, before it became a reality. So my question is, did I think up a synthesizer, or did the synthesizer think of me? Is purpose and all of its uncontrollable energy born within us? Or do we somehow open a door and let it in? I'm so tired How long can this go on? When I was 13, I had a new purpose in life. I think it could be directly attributed to Peter, Paul, and Mary. I wanted a guitar. My mother and father were either foolish or absolutely inspired. They told me no. Mom said they didn't have the money. If I wanted a guitar, I would have to go to work. I think the active ingredient in purpose is how you hear those words, go to work. Having to go out and get a job could sound like a punishment, but when I was 13, to my ear, it sounded like a glorious permission. In one sentence, my parents expressed that I was old enough to get a job and to spend my money however I saw fit. It was a dream come true. Of course, my parents could have been counting on a third party weighing in on my decision. A powerful third party. Reality. Because of child labor laws, it was hard finding a job. Of course, there were paper routes. The only choice was which paper did you want to deliver, morning or afternoon. I made several phone calls to the Dallas Morning News and Times Herald. I asked Mom if she could help me pay for side baskets on my bike to carry newspapers. After some private discussions, my parents decided to shake the family tree. My Uncle Jaime said he would hire me for the summer. I could do something called filing at his main store downtown. I would work from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, and get paid minimum wage, which was $1.25 an hour minus taxes and Social Security. To understand the economics of this, at the time, I was paid $1.25 to mow our backyard. That took about 30 minutes so my new job would be like mowing the backyard 16 times a day, five days a week. But I was going to be indoors, sitting down, in air conditioning. I felt like the luckiest person in the world. Dad wasn't so lucky. He had to drive me to work. 
That meant driving 25 miles in morning traffic downtown, dropping me off at EM Cans and turning around and driving 25 miles back in traffic to get to his office in Oak Cliff before he started seeing screaming children at 9 a.m. But my father never complained. Not once. However, one morning he did leave a bus schedule in my room. I couldn't wait. I was 13 years old taking the bus to work. I didn't take a sack lunch like I did for school. I was a working man. Mom gave me $5 for lunch and what she called emergencies. I had no idea what that meant, but I assumed they couldn't be real emergencies if all I needed was $5. I caught the Elmwood East on Edgefield, a few blocks from our house. It arrived sometime between 7.20 and 7.40 in the morning. Would get me to Jaime's store between 8.30 and quarter to 9. Time enough for me to get a cup of coffee in the employee's lounge. On the bus ride, I would get two different looks from my fellow travelers. The vast majority looked at me with that dazed, oh gosh, it's way too early in the morning, bouncing around on a bus stair that seemed to ask, why? The rest looked at me with amusement as if they were saying, why not? I was happy to belong to the small select group of why nots. When I got to work my first day, I was told to go to the second floor and sit in the waiting area. Cans was a fairly high-end clothing store. All the men's clothing and suits and sweaters, dress shirts and tuxedos were on the first floor. Women's clothing was on the second floor, along with a mysterious waiting area supervised by a secretary at a desk guarding wooden double doors. Footnote. The major element that separated E.M. Cans from today's clothing stores was wood. Wood. Beautiful wood. The walls and halls were paneled. The stairs had wooden banisters. The elevator was wooden. It was like a small coffin big enough for four. Once we got into the inner sanctum, behind the big wooden double doors, the desks, the chairs, the walls were all wood. It would have made a beautiful fire. The secretary guarding the waiting area was a pleasant-looking middle-aged woman wearing a handsome but understated dress and blouse probably purchased with her employee's discount on the second floor. She wore lots of makeup, base, rouge, lipstick, eyebrow pencil, eyeshadow, and her modest hairstyle was being held in place by layers and layers of aquanet. This was not to look like a showgirl. At this time in history, this is what women did to be seen in public. I overheard her talking to a co-worker at the employee's lounge that it took her two hours to get dressed and made up in the morning. No wonder there was a revolution. The world was waiting for it, and it began one year later in Liverpool. She looked at me with the most pleasant professional smile and said, Your uncle is coming out to see you. Uncle Jaime stuck his head out from the double doors. Stephen, come on back. I followed Uncle Jaime through the pool of typists. Several of the women looked up to make note of the boss's nephew. One man in particular took notice of me. He was bald. He was a middle-aged man with glasses. If we did a movie today about my time at EM Cans, he would probably be played by me. As we went into his private office, Jaime said to the man, Elliot, make sure we get the sales numbers today. Uh, yes, sir. I could tell from the exchange Elliot was Jaime's main man. He was also just about Jaime's only man. Almost all 
of the employees at Cannes were women. The only men I saw were the salesmen on the first floor, the tailor, Elliot, and me. Now, I don't think it was because Jaime believed in giving opportunities to women in a male-dominated world. I mean, he could have been. He was married to Hermine, one of my personal heroes who wrote the Equal Rights Amendment. But I suspect it was that most of the jobs at Cannes were for typists, and that's what women did. But a revolution was coming. Jaime explained that the big 4th of July sale would start in a few weeks and the store would be sending out flyers, what in our current age we would call junk mail, to all of their customers. He led me into a noisy room with a wall of little wooden filing cabinets, like the kind that would hold Dewey Decimal cards at a library. Jaime pulled out one long file box. There were about two, three hundred metal plates with names stamped into the metal. Stephen, I want you to start with the A's and make sure all the metal plates are in alphabetical order. Later on, we'll teach you how to make new plates or change the old ones, but first make sure these are properly filed. It was then I understood the looks of the people on the bus. I had just descended into hell. I pulled out the first tray of metal plates. I carried it back to the sewing room where the tailors worked. The room smelled of starch and steam from the pressing machines. At the far end of the room were a table, a chair, and a window. A tall, narrow window that looked out onto downtown. This was my workspace. I pulled my transistor radio out of my pocket, popped in the earplugs. I tuned the radio to my dad's favorite station, WRR. It played what I call pericoma music. Not everything was sung by pericoma, but it sounded like it was. Even the women. What made WRR special was every hour at quarter till, they had Library of Laughs. They played comedy records for 15 minutes. Henny Youngman, Bob and Ray, Bob Newhart. I loved it. I dove into the first box of metal plates. I felt the first sting of the lash when I hit Adams. There were so many of them. There was even an Adam Adams. It took about 30 or 40 minutes to get through the box. It was like being in a forest with no end in sight. I would fly through a box or two, and then I would hit Baker or Davis. There had to be a hundred Davises. After about 50, I would start to hallucinate. Once Jaime came back to check on me. What do you have going on there? He gestured to my earplugs. Oh, I'm listening to WRR. Take them off. What, I asked? Jaime gestured and raised his voice. Turn off the radio. No radios at work. I obeyed but said, Uncle Jaime, I could file listening to the radio. Maybe you can, but it's not allowed, Jaime said. But Uncle Jaime, filing is very boring. I don't want to go crazy. Jaime paled and walked up to me and said quietly, Stephen, those are the rules. You could follow them if you want to work here. You are my nephew. You're a reflection on me. If I make exceptions for you, I have to make exceptions for everyone. That's not how you run a business. I put the radio up. Jaime left the room. I scheduled my lunch hour and my two breaks to include Library of Laughs. I got two 15-minute breaks a day, and I went to the employees' lounge. They had a Coke machine where a bottle of Coke was six cents. There was a wooden table with four chairs in the middle of the room and a big green leatherette couch along one wall. There were always salesmen and saleswomen coming in to smoke cigarettes, 
I usually sat on the big couch and listened to my radio. One day I came into the lounge. There were four salesmen from the first floor laughing and drinking coffee. I went to the Coke machine to get something to drink. I heard the door open and everything went quiet. A woman came in. She didn't look like anyone I had ever seen in my life. In my college days, I would have had the experience to say she looked like a stripper. She was petite, except for her breasts. They weren't petite. She had almost no waist at all, and her hips looked like a vase that my mother put flowers in. Her hair was so blonde, it almost looked white and stood on her head like a magnificent beehive. Her eyes were the darkest brown and had layers and layers of purple shadow with enormous black eyelashes. She made me have a funny feeling in the pit of my stomach. She sat where I had been sitting on the couch. The salesman fumbled around and tried to pick up conversations they had dropped when she came into the room. She pulled out a paperback from her purse and began reading. One of the salesmen introduced himself to her. His name was Jim. He was handsome in a sort of Texas, I was an athlete in high school but didn't go to college sort of way. Her name was Anna. She was the new sales girl in the women's department. I put a nickel and a penny into the Coke machine and pressed the lever. Maybe I was distracted by the arrival of Anna. Maybe I pressed something wrong, but I didn't get a Coke. I pressed the coin return and my nickel came out, but not my penny. I broke into the conversation between Jim and Anna. Uh, excuse me, I lost my penny. What? asked Jim. Why, well, I put six cents in and I didn't get my Coke and I didn't get my penny. Jim scrunched up his face. Well, I don't know, kid. Maybe you have to see a custodian. He has a key to the machines. Where is he? I don't know. He's out there somewhere. He's wearing blue overalls. Okay, thank you. I headed for the door. Jim called out. Or I can just give you a damn penny and you can forget the whole thing. All the salesmen laughed. No, it's my penny. The company owns the machine and they shouldn't get my penny unless I get my Coke. I left the employees' lounge in search of blue overalls. There seemed to be two types of hallways in the back workings of EM cans. Those that were lit seemed to wind in the direction of the elevators and those no one was meant to walk down except custodians. These were dark and narrow. The rickety board seemed to creak under my feet. I couldn't imagine this path was ever plotted on a blueprint. Ahead I saw the glow of a fluorescent light and heard Mexican music coming from a radio. Sitting in the room, eating a sandwich, was a man in blue overalls. He looked at me with confusion. Hello, I said. He nodded. Hello. I was just in the employee's lounge and I lost a penny in the machine. The man stared at me. You know, the Cokes are six cents, and I put in a nickel and a penny, and I got my nickel back, but no penny. He continued to stare. The salesman said you had a key to the machine and you could get my penny out? He squinted at me as if he was trying to grasp the essentials of my request. Key, I demonstrated. You have the key to the Coke machine? No, I have the key. I can open the Coke machine and give you money, but I need a note that says I can. Well, my uncle is the boss. Mr. Tobolowsky, I'm sure he would authorize it. Then you should go talk to him. Or I could give you a penny. No, no, keep your penny. The company makes plenty of money. They don't need you to be giving me your money. Thank you. 
I walked back toward the light. After several wrong turns, I made it back to the secretary in front of the big double doors. Hi, uh, I'm Stephen. I know, Stephen. You're Mr. Tobolowsky's nephew. How do you like working here? I'm learning a lot. Is it possible to speak to my uncle? Is he free? She was somewhat surprised by the formality of my request. She donned her business persona. I'll check. Please have a seat. After a couple of minutes, Uncle Jaime stuck his head through the double doors. Hello, Stephen. Everything all right? Pretty much. Could I speak to you? Uncle Jaime gestured for me to follow him into his office. I loved Uncle Jaime's office. There were family pictures on the wall and a big window that looked out into the heart of downtown Dallas. When I was a little boy, Jaime always invited us, our family, all of my nieces and nephews to watch the 4th of July parade from his window. It was different now that I was an employee. After a brief explanation of the situation, Jaime looked at me. You're kidding. No, sir. You wanted to meet with me because you lost a penny in the Coke machine? Yes, sir. Jaime reached into his pocket and pulled out some change. Here you go. No, sir. I don't want your change. The Coke machine malfunctioned and took my penny. And I didn't get a Coke. What happens if I let this go and it happens again? Then you would have lost two pennies. Yes, sir. Jaime tossed me a dime. There's money for ten machine malfunctions. Now get back to work. No, sir. Jaime's smile vanished. He leaned forward in his seat. What do you want, Stephen? Well, sir, it's not easy having this job. I take the bus every morning and every afternoon. I make $1.25 an hour, and I don't like the idea of the company keeping something that belongs to me. I want my penny back from the machine. Jaime stared at me. You want the penny from the machine? Yes, sir, I said. Come on. Jaime got up and walked me back to the employee's lounge. He opened the Coke machine with his key and pulled a penny out of the cash box. There you go. Thank you, sir. If I were you, I'd drink something other than the Cokes. Try the coffee. It's free. Yes, sir, and thanks again. Stephen? Yes? You're going to be a millionaire by the time you're 21. Really? Jaime shook his head. I'm certain of it. I began to look forward to my daily routine. I developed the section of my brain that enabled me to read on a moving bus. I started a James Bond book, Moonraker. Very adult, but fabulous. On the ride home, I challenged my balance by trying to get all the way from downtown Dallas to Oak Cliff, standing in the middle of the bus in a surfer's pose without holding on. This irritated many of the older passengers. Uncle Jaime was happy with my progress. He was sure I was going to get through the alphabet in time to send out the 4th of July flyers. He didn't make as many trips to the sewing room to check up on me. I decided it was safe to listen to my radio again. 
No one else had a job like mine in the store. They either sold clothes, carried boxes, or did bookkeeping. Elliot was clearly second in command under Jaime. He sat in front of Uncle Jaime's office looking out over the women in the typing pool. I could see the apprehension in the women's eyes when he would walk over and speak to them. I assumed he could fire them or get them fired. But Elliot was always friendly to me. When he saw me in the employee's lounge, he sat next to me on the couch. He'd ask how I was doing. So, Stephen, how do you like working here? Well, I like it a lot, Elliot. Well, I'm sure you'd rather be playing baseball. No, not really. I want a guitar, and this is the only way I can get it. Ho, ho, an entrepreneur. I didn't know what entrepreneur was, but I began to develop the adult skill of looking like I was considering my answer before shrugging. Maybe, I said. Elliot, how long have you worked here? Well, I started when I was young, like you. This will be 32 years. Oh, my God! Do you take the bus? No, I drive. I have a parking space. Well, I can't believe anyone would work in one place that long. Elliot looked over at me, over the top of his glasses. I work my way up through the ranks, just like you are now. Oh, I, I don't think I'm doing that, Elliot. I, I really just want to get a guitar. Uncle Jaime came into the lounge and put money into the Coke machine. Oh, Stephen, I see you're in the middle of some high-level discussions. No, I said, I'm just talking to Elliot. Jaime opened his cola and looked over at me. Mr. Elliot. His name is Mr. Elliot. He's our first vice president. I looked at Elliot with embarrassment. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were Elliot. Oh, that's all right, Elliot said. He smiled at me like he was in a Pepsodent commercial. Mr. Elliot turned to Uncle Jaime. I've just been talking to your nephew, and I think I need to watch out, Mr. Tobolowsky. He has his sights set on my job. Jaime laughed. Well, I think you're safe, Elliot. Mr. Elliot patted me on the shoulder and laughed, too. He joined my uncle, and the two of them left the lounge together. It was probably this moment that made me never want a real job. I have nothing against Mr. Elliot. He was a company man through and through. And as far as my Uncle Jaime was concerned, he was a saint, or the Jewish counterpart thereof. But in that instant, I saw that the only reason why Mr. Elliot was always friendly toward me was he was hoping Uncle Jaime would witness the event and think well of him. After 32 years of work and rising to the level of first vice president, Mr. Elliot still felt he had to hang out with a 13-year-old alphabetizer and suck up to his boss. That's a long time to spend in purgatory. In school, we studied the great historical catastrophes. The Dust Bowl of the 1930s. The Galveston Hurricane of 1900. The Children's Crusade. They were all just pictures in a book until I began to alphabetize the Smiths. The Adams were bad. Not as bad as the Johnsons. But the Smiths occupied trays and trays and trays of little metal plates. There had to be over a thousand. A.A. A. Smith, A. Albert Smith, A.B. Calbert, Addison Smith, Addison Calbert, Dexter Smith, and on and on and on and on. I can't tell you the joy, the excitement I felt when I finally got to a Smithson. 
That is what hardship teaches. The difference between Adams and Smith. The Jewish service repeatedly makes the request that God grant us knowledge, wisdom, and discernment. Nothing teaches discernment like hardship. The great thinkers of the Enlightenment left out something in their wonderfully simple recipe for living that man moves toward pleasure and away from pain. Sometimes it's hard to know what pleasure and pain look like. Life isn't easy as snakes. With a snake, you look at the head. Round head, good. Triangular, bad. Working at cans and alphabetizing was more of a triangular-headed experience. But it could eventually lead to a guitar, which would be pleasurable. Of course, once I started playing, it could become a triangular-headed experience for those around me. Life is complicated. It took almost four days to get to the end of the Smiths. I would have had a martini, but I didn't know what a martini was. I returned the last horrid tray of S's to the horribly noisy room and the wall of trays holding the thousands and thousands of little metal plates. I looked over the rest of my task. T to Z, I was definitely on the downward side. Then I realized I would still have to face Thomas's, Thompson's, Terry's, And that's when it happened. I don't know how, but I missed getting my S-tray into the slot. It fell. Hundreds of smiths scattered across the floor. A cry slipped from my soul. I fell to my knees to survey the damage. It was complete. I was devastated. I took a moment to compose myself. I got up. I walked past the typist pool, past Mr. Elliot, who smiled at me as I walked by his desk, up to Uncle Jaime's office. I knocked. Yes? Jaime called. I opened the door and stuck my head inside. May I speak to you? Why, yes, Stephen. What's wrong? I went inside the office. I shut the door. I sat at the chair before Uncle Jaime's desk. Uncle Jaime. I made a mistake. Uncle Jaime's face took on a new countenance. There wasn't anger, just interest. What happened? he asked. I dropped a tray. There are metal plates everywhere. Do you know how long it's been taking you to do a tray? Yes, sir. Long time. Yes, and now we're going to be late getting our advertising out for the fourth. Yes, sir. Jaime looked at me and considered. Then he asked, What do you propose we do? Well, I'm going to have to redo the tray and finish on time. Right, said Jaime. He thought through the situation. How about you stay late tomorrow? We have security in the store to 9 p.m. Do you think you can redo the tray and get back on schedule with four extra hours? I'll try, sir, I said. Then that's what we'll do. I nodded and stood up to leave. I stopped at the door and turned. Uncle Jaime, yes? I'm sorry. Stephen, so far hiring you has cost this company $2,700. Do better. I will, sir. Jaime looked at me. I know you will. That evening, I told Mom about the change in plans. Mom said she would pick me up in front of Cairns at 9 p.m. She didn't want me riding the bus that late. The next morning, I felt strangely energized. Rather than dreading the long day, I was excited about what life would look like after 5 p.m. 
I began my day attacking the Smiths. I hated the Smiths so much, I began flying through metal plates. I even remembered some of my previous alphabetizing. In my mind, I saw sequences of Smiths that lived throughout Dallas and Tarrant County, even as far as Grand Prairie. I was thrilled that my mind retained so much of my work. And I was also depressed that my mind retained so much of my work. Life is complicated. I worked through my first coffee break. Jaime came to check on me. He nodded in approval and left. I took my lunch break and walked around outside. Oh, the day looks different when you don't have a chance to see it. I imagined how prisoners must feel when they walk out to freedom after years of being behind bars. I bet a breeze would never seem the same. It was time to go back to work. Instead of taking the stairs as usual, I got into the elevator. The elevator was tiny by comparison to its modern descendants. It's big enough for four people, small people, or two people that chopped at cans and the operator. In 1963, there were still a few elevators that had a driver. At cans, the job was split up between a black man who wore a blue uniform with brass buttons, a tie, and what looked like a policeman's hat. And when he had time off, a black woman took over the controls She appeared less formal. She wore a blue uniform, pants, white shirt, tie, but no hat. Instead of the jacket with brass buttons, she just wore a dark blue sweater. Today, the man was at the wheel. Hello, I said. Afternoon, said the elevator operator. I've been working here for almost three weeks. I always take the stairs, but today I thought I'd take the elevator, I said. The operator smiled and closed the door. Well, it's quite a show, he said. Have you worked here long, I asked. The operator turned and looked at me. Over 25 years working this elevator. Wow, that's a long time. Mm, Lots of ups and downs, said the operator. That's a joke. Oh, I work up on the second floor. Why, figure, that's all there is up there. That and ladies' clothes. Well, I'm working tonight, I said. Oh, you are? Yes, sir, till nine. The elevator arrived at the second floor and the operator opened the door, sliding the metal accordion safety grate. Nine, nobody's here at nine. I know, I said. Were you scared of the dark? No, sir, I said. Well, that's good because there's nothing turned on after five, except the elevator. You want to use the elevator? Uh, No, I don't think so, I said. Do you know how to run an elevator? No, sir. The operator closed the door and the safety grate again. Everything is in the lever. Push forward is up. Middle stop. Pull it back is down. The operator pulled the lever and we started down again. Well, this takes a little while to stop. Now watch this. We were arriving at the ground floor and the man pulled the lever to the middle. Now see, it sort of stops gradually. You're going to have to get the feel of it. The operator opened the door in the grate at the ground floor. Well, I'm not going to run the elevator, but thank you for showing me how, Mr. Ike. Uh, Is that Ike or Mr. Ike, I asked. You're the boss's child, right? No, sir, I'm, I'm his nephew. Same thing. Call me anything you want. Well, thank you, Ike. I walked out of the elevator and took the stairs. Everyone left at five. Uncle Jaime came and checked on me on his way out. Everything good? he asked. 
Yes, sir. The security guard will be here at five. He'll turn off all of the lights except here in your room. He'll be upstairs again at 9 p.m. to escort you out. Your mother will be waiting for you? Uh, yes, sir. All right. Let's see if we can catch up today. We want to do that mailing in a couple of days. Jaime left. I went to work in the noisy room. I couldn't work in my usual spot in the tailor's room by the narrow window. All of the lights were off on the entire second floor, everywhere, but in the noisy room. I worked into the tees before I took a break. I walked out of the big double doors into the women's clothing section. The only light came from the street lights outside. Oh, by day this room was all elegance and color. By night, it was just indeterminate shapes and smells, mostly mothballs. It doesn't matter how many science classes you take in school. Darkness can still surprise you. In this case, I found it surprising that the mannequins looked less creepy in the dark than they did during the day. I made my way downstairs to the main floor. It was darkness on darkness. The male mannequins were shadows standing amongst the suits. I ambled in the direction of the front doors. Cars were driving home. I turned and started back toward the stairs when out of the corner of my eye, I saw a mannequin start to move. I jumped. A flashlight came into my face. What are you doing here? said the shadow. What? I'm security. The offices are closed. I'm sorry. I'm working upstairs. I said I was taking a break. I'm sorry. Well, I heard there was someone working here until nine. Didn't tell me it was a kid. Yes, sir. I'm the kid and I better get back to work. Well, I'll be upstairs to escort you out around nine, the officer assured me. Yes, sir. Thank you. Glad you're here. I didn't come down again. I did begin to hear voices calling to me from the noise of the noisy room. In spite of the hauntings, I got an enormous amount of work done. I realized I craved distraction. I never got so much done until my work became my distraction. I almost finished the tease. I completed my job of alphabetizing a day ahead of schedule, and all because I dropped the Smiths. Jaime was pleased. Mr. Elliot heard I finished ahead of schedule and offered me a genuine smile and something more substantial. I believe this is yours. Mr. Elliot handed me my first paycheck, $110. Even though I hated the job at Cairns, I felt something I never experienced before the pride of a job well done. It was especially sweet because I really did hate the work. Life is complicated. I went to the employee's lounge to celebrate my first payday with a cup of coffee. Once a Coke machine betrays you, you never go back. There was something up with the grown-ups. Jim was talking to his salesman buddies in low tones. He stopped when I walked in. The guy sat back and looked into space. A fat salesman let out a short laugh. He got up, shook his head in disbelief, patted Jim on the back as he walked out. Jim blushed and shooed him away. Just then, Anna walked in. The silence became even more silent. She looked as good as a mannequin at night. She pulled some cigarettes out of her purse and lit one. Good morning, Jim, Eddie, she said. Morning, said Eddie. Eddie smiled, got up and left. Morning, Anna, Jim said. I got a refill of my coffee and sat back down on the couch. So, Anna, anything new going on? Jim asked.
Anna smiled but didn't look up from her paperback. I went to that new steakhouse in Garland. Oh, really? Was it good? I'd say it was very good. Hmm, that sounds promising. Maybe I have to go there myself. You won't regret it. Jim laughed. Well, now I can't wait. All this talk about steak was making me hungry. I went back to work. The junk mail went out on schedule. Jaime was pleased. Not for my work, and not that I didn't make him look bad in front of his employees, even though I probably did. Jaime was happy as a horseman who introduced another young colt to the bit. He invited our family to watch the 4th of July parade from his office window. I was thrilled the family could see the place where I worked. I showed Mom and Dad my chair and the window by my chair. I showed them the filing cabinet, the home to thousands of the little metal plates that I had to alphabetize. I showed Mom the Smiths. She was impressed. Jaime called us back to his office. The parade had started. I love the 4th of July parades in Dallas. They were never grand, usually just a dozen or so groups carrying flags, a convertible or two with their tops down, with the queen and her court waving at the few scattered onlookers. The Lions and Kiwanis clubs were represented. They marched wearing their funny hats. There were a couple of high school bands marching to their drum corps. My favorite was always the March of the Veterans of Past Wars. When I was little, I remember they still had a few soldiers in the parade from World War I. Everyone saluted the soldiers. Men took off their hats. So many wars. As a boy of 13, it was hard to imagine a world in which I wouldn't have to fight in a war. None of us knew a place called Vietnam was waiting in the wings. The best part of the festivities was that it looked like a car with a family on vacation got caught in the parade. I could see the father in the front seat yelling at his wife, who was holding the math. The kids were in the back seat laughing and waving at the crowd. So, Stephen worked very hard this summer, Uncle Jaime said. Well, I hope he did a good job for you, said Dad. Jaime smiled. Oh, we had a couple bumps along the way, but he showed me he's a good worker. Like I told him, he'll probably be a millionaire by the time he's 21. Oh, that's nice, said my mother. Jaime winked at me. In fact, Stephen, if you're interested in working next summer, the job is open. Well, thank you, Uncle Jaime. I'd love to. It's true. I hated working at Cairns. I hated getting up early. But I like listening to Library of Laughs. I like the employees' lounge. I like the bus. And I especially like the paycheck. $110 a week for eight weeks is a lot of money for a kid who hasn't even taken driver's ed. Maybe I'll buy that guitar. Or maybe not. With my riches, I could afford a record player. Or a television set for my room. Or a pool table. Who knows? My parents never suspected. Uncle Jaime never dreamed. They thought they were making a man. They were wrong. Quite by accident, they unleashed a purpose within me that could not be stopped. Now, I was a consumer.
That was Working Man, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You are listening to the Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, uh, your story reminds me of uh, this meme online. Do you know what a meme is, Stephen Tobolowsky? Isn't it a picture with a caption underneath it? Something like that, yeah. There's been this meme online, and it basically uh, is a chart of uh, time, energy, and money. You know, And it's like when you're a kid... You have lots of time, you have lots of energy, you have no money. When you're an adult, you have lots of energy, you have lots of money, but you have no time. And when you are old, like a senior person, uh, you have time, you have money, but no energy. It's the uh, <laughs> the paradox of life. There's no t- there's no point in time uh, in a regular existence at which you have all three. Which is uh, I've always struck it's always struck me as very sad, almost tragic even. What do you think of that? Yeah, I th- I think that is pretty tragic. I. As I look back, there are three days in my life in which I had everything I needed at the time. <laughs> three, days three days out of your entire existence. One day, I was 17. I was 17. Uh, when I was in my 40s and I was working on a show, I thought, I've got it. Got everything happening. And uh, <laughs> just the other morning, during the pandemic, of all things... Uh, and cooked fresh bread and cinnamon rolls, and I thought, to hell with civilization, I'm eating sweets. And I felt completely satisfied. <laughs> well, uh, wow. <laughs> it's, 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 you, were, you were keeping track of those three days, and you just had the third one like a couple weeks ago. Hey, I'm like. waiting for number four, David. I'm waiting for number four. Well, it's three days more than many of us, but uh, in the meantime, until next episode of the Double Ask Files, Stephen, where can people see and experience more stories? Well, there's the video versions that we're doing of the stories, David, which is at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Is that correct? That is correct. Ah. YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. Check it out there. We've been doing video versions of stories. Subscribe, like, share these things. Uh, and if you do that, there might be more of them in the future. So uh, youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Thanks for checking that out. Uh, you can follow Steven on Twitter at Tobolowski. I'm at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. Uh, check out my other podcast, Culturally Relevant, on Apple Podcasts as well. And check out Simplecast.com, which is powering the Tobolowski Files this season. Simplecast.com is a great resource for creating or managing your podcast. Uh, but until next week, we'll be back with another episode of the Tobolowski Files very, very soon. Adios. Oh my, oh my.